Hey, Forge family. The last podcast covered Joel chapter 3, 1 to 8. In that text, the Lord God promised the restoration of Judah. And to add an exclamation point to that promise, he will summon all the surrounding nations to the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of his judgment. And what was it that the Phoenician people of Tyre and Sidon, the people of five Philistine cities of Ekron, Gath, Ashkelon, Gaza, and Ashdod, were charged with before the Lord? It was their wicked treatment of the men, women, and children of Judah and Israel. Jews had been snatched up by slave traders, stripped of their wealth, and sold to the Greeks in the far north. Their lands had been occupied by the foreigners. It had been a radical ethnic cleansing, for those Philistines and Phoenicians hated God's people and their God. The land, the silver, the gold, and the precious things that were taken from the Jews are described by the Lord as if they were things that had been taken from him directly. Then the Lord announced judgment on those nations. They were to be gathered and sold into slavery, ultimately to the Sabaeans, a people group that lived in the far south of the Arabian Peninsula. They themselves were slave traders, and the Phoenicians and Philistine sons and daughters could have been sold on to any location facing the Indian Ocean. The punishment was an exact replica of the Jews being sold into slavery to the north. That is measured retribution. This podcast landed on top of the news of riots and looting across American cities. The people in the streets shouted out for justice and rights. Some chose to smash and grab, battling any opposition voices or armed resistance. Yes, a black man had been killed in a police apprehension. But underlying the racial issue in our nation is the spirit of division. Just like the Phoenicians and Philistines hated and harmed the Jews, that same demonic entity is still unaddressed in our nation. Whether rich or poor, black or white, Asian or Hispanic, Native American or Indian, there are frequent outbreaks pushed along by dark spiritual forces that go unrecognized and unaddressed. Once again, it is the church that is remiss here. Too often in the past, the American church fostered racial divides in direct violation of not dealing with this divisive spirit. So Forge, put those words in your mouth and begin to stand in rejection of our forefathers' actions under a spiritualized covering and repent for any divisive choices of, or beliefs in you and yours that is fostered by this spirit of division. <clears throat> We have no authority if our hands and hearts are not cleansed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your good news message went forth from Jerusalem to the known world, crossing multitudes of cultural divisions and practices. The removal of the veil gave access to God, to all men and women who listened and believed in Jesus as their Savior. No longer was it male and female slave and free, Jew and Gentile. Today, we come to ask you, Lord, for your direction for Forge as we are surrounded by those caught up by this spirit of division that would kill, steal, and destroy. 
Put your words in our mouths and your heart in us so that we may walk and speak in a new way. All right, family, open your Joel texts to Joel 3, 9 to 12. The next nine verses of Hebrew poetry pass back and forth between the Lord and his prophet Joel. Both of their voices being heard here. Joel leads out first. Quote, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come all of you surrounding nations and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, thy mighty ones. <coughs> Excuse me. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. The commands in verse 8 are split between messages sent to the surrounding nations to rise to a warfare stance to prepare to fight. To arm the surrounding nations, the farmers were to remove the iron strip. It was seven to eight inches, maybe even nine inches long, off the front edges of their plowshares. Okay, the plow itself had been made of some hard wood like acacia. But the iron edge on the front was what broke the sods, split the soil, and crumbled the clods. These pieces of iron would then be quickly taken to a blacksmith to be heated and beaten into a sword. Likewise, the pruning hooks can be envisioned if you curl your hand into a tight curled shape like a fishing hook. That would have been a piece of iron sharpened on one edge that was set on a long pole used to reach up and prune olive trees and fruit trees. Those curved iron blades would be heated in a forge and beaten into the shape of a spearhead. Even those weak ones who were deemed unfit for battle were called and infused with a form of battle strength. In chapter 2, Joel saw a vast army approaching Jerusalem at the Lord's direction. It's part of the day of the Lord. Okay, and it will overrun the city. Now here in chapter 3, the irony here is that the Lord through Joel, is calling for the mighty men and warriors to gather as part of this vast coalition army of Gentile nations rushing to a battle that it cannot win. Both scenarios are part of the day of the Lord. Isaiah and Micah use the same prophetic imagery of beating out tools in a forge, but they state the case in the inverse form. The call for swords to be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. See, one scenario is war preparation. One is announcing peace and a return to the agricultural economy. I believe that Joel spoke of war preparation as a first mention in Scripture at the direction of the Lord, and the following prophets reversed it at the direction of the Lord. Verses 11 to 12 puts urgency to the call. Hasten, come all of you, Surrounding nations, all all the surrounding nations, and come, gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, thy mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. 
So on the first part of this chapter, the Phoenicians and Philistines were being called to judgment. Here, the map is spread wider, as you will see in verse 19. It will include Edom, that nation descended from Esau that dwells in the southeast end of the Dead Sea. And it will include Egypt. The Lord repeats the call of verse 9 to gather the surrounding nations. But now his agenda is clear. It's not war. It is judgment. Verse 13 has Joel picked up the prophecy with agricultural commands. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Joel pictures a vast harvest of grapes. The word sickle would normally be used to describe harvesting grain by seizing a handful of the stalks and then cutting it with a wide hooked blade. Here the text says that it is a vine dresser's knife that is used to prune vines and harvest grapes. Somewhere between the full-sized curved sickle and the tightly curved pruning hook is a vine dresser's curved knife. Joel uses a harvest picture of treading out the ripe grapes and letting the juice run free into stone vats or cisterns to begin to ferment. Here, the vats are overflowing. And then the truth of the imagery is made clear. Shifting from the agricultural to the heart condition. The wickedness of the Gentile nations that surrounded Judah and Jerusalem is great. It is overflowing. Now recall in Genesis 15 that Yahweh is telling Abram that his descendants would go into captivity for 400 years. And then come out with many possessions. As for Abram, the Lord says he will go to his ancestors in peace. In the fourth generation... Abram's descendants will return to the land of Canaan, but not yet. For, quote, the sin of the Amorites is not yet full, unquote. The Lord has held himself back from judgment over and over. But here in the day of the Lord, the overflowing evil of the surrounding nations will be judged. Verses 14 to 17 describes the setting of the day of the Lord. This, this, day of the ju- this day of judgment. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. <clears throat> the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. And the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. Another way to translate the opening line is mobs of warriors. It is multitudes and multitudes. I mean, there's exclamation points all over this passage in Hebrew. Some evangelical-faced evangelists of the past have used this phrase, the valley of decision, out of context to describe souls that are poised to receive Christ or to reject him. The word, quote, decision, unquote, is literally the word verdict in Hebrew. It will be the valley of verdict 
on the surrounding nations in the day of the Lord. Joel follows with the signs of the heavens, the sun and the moon darkened and the stars lose their brightness. And then the Lord's voice will roar out of Jerusalem, causing the heavens and the earth to tremble. This is a direct answer to the shouted roar of enemies and raiders that have come against Jerusalem in the past and even in that day. Only now, the vast volume and power of the roar of the Lord will shake the natural world. At the end of Joel's description is the assurance that the Lord is a refuge, a safe haven for his people. Here, as in Isaiah 25, the Lord is both a refuge and a stronghold. Plainly stated, there will be no salvation outside of Israel. The Lord reaffirms that Israel will know that he is the Lord their God who would dwell in Zion, the holy mountain, the site of the temple that Solomon built. Further, the Lord promises that Jerusalem will be holy and no strangers, no uncircumcised, unclean, evil men will pass through it ever again. Verses 18 to 21 reveal the final state of the land and the people of God on the day of the Lord. Verse 18 opens with, quote, And it will come about in that day that the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. The struggle that Judah had with drought and locusts is past. The mountains will drip with new wine, an astounding harvest in abundance. The hills will flow with milk, which says all that scorched pasture land has been replaced with green, verdant slopes, and there'll be so much milk, it will seem to flow, and the brooks will run with water. This is prophetic poetry that is often repeated in other books of the prophets. The house of the Lord set on top of Zion's hill was dry, as was the rest of Jerusalem. Later, Hezekiah would set about to open a secret shaft, the water, the water shaft, if you will, in the solid rock to get access to the water for Jerusalem during siege time and war. Unlike the temples of Mesopotamia, Syria, and even in Egypt, there was no flowing spring of water that flowed from Zion. Instead, inside the temple courts, there was a shaft, natural, a natural shaft in, the, in solid rock, into which the blood that was left over from the sacrifices, where the, the priest would hold the bowl of blood from the sacrificed animal, and he would take a, his, a, a handful of, of hyssop, and he would spatter the blood on the altar and hand the bowl off to a Levite and it would, or another priest, and it would be carried to the top of this shaft and poured down into the, into the earth. <clears throat> in, in those other ancient temples that had been built over artesian springs, see, those other temples, those other, those other forms of worship all over Mesopotamia, Syria, and Egypt, they proclaimed, this, this is living water. This water has all kinds of spiritual properties. Okay? But here, 
the text says that there will be a flow of water from the temple that will run down the valley of Shittim. Now, while no one knows for sure where this particular valley is, it may be the Wadi and Nar. It's a dry gash in the slope out of the, of the Kidron Valley that runs all the way to the Dead Sea. In that dry Wadi, there are still growing acacia trees. That's the English translation of Shittim. Okay? And those acacia trees grow in dry gullies. It may also be just a statement from the Lord that even the valley of Shittim will run with water. Ezekiel saw such a flow out of the temple. And 800 years after Joel, Jesus stood in that temple and identified himself as the one from whom such a flow of living water would emanate. The ancient temples abounded with claims that the springs that they were built over released living water. But now we know that the source of living water is a person, the man Christ Jesus. Now we come to Joel's final statements of God's judgment on the nations. Verse 19 says, Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become a desolate wilderness. Now let me pause there. Now Egypt essentially is a desert waste, except that every year the Nile River flowing from the south to the north out of Ethiopia, out of, out of, out of those far southern regions in, in, toward the Sudan, it, it floods every year and inundates its banks and produces a, a great agricultural um, richness in Egypt along the banks of the Nile. Now here the Lord says it will become a waste. Okay, That says the flow of the Nile River will be ceased. Let's continue. Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. Egypt is the oldest antagonist against Israel and Edom is a close second. Both raided into Judah to plunder, to take slaves and to disrupt Judah's hold on the land. In each case, it would be said that they egregiously, unnecessarily shed innocent blood. Not only did Egypt enslave Israel for 400 years, Egyptian monarchs Shishak, Osarkon, and Necho are noted for their savage attacks on Judah. Edom's history of opposing Israel dates to the Exodus, when they forced the march of the Israelites to the Promised Land to widely detour around Edom and Moab. David led the armies of Israel to defeat Edom, but then they arose with a coalition of Moabite and Mayunite warriors to attack Jehoshaphat. Edomites were essentially desert raiders, and they were a consistent problem on the southern borders of Judah. <clears throat> when Judah's soldiers and their families fled from the Babylonian army in 586 B.C., they were seized as prey by the Edomites. The Lord prophesies that these nations will revert to desert wasteland. Egypt and Edom will serve as a sign to the other gathered nations. There's a sharp contrast of the state of judged Edom and Egypt to that of Judah. Verses 20 and 21 state, But Judah will be inhabited forever 
and Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged. For the Lord dwells in Zion. The Hebrew text here is very terse. And it may be that the Lord kept it short and to the point. As he is the only one who is qualified to take vengeance for his people. Another point is that he never forgets the shedding of innocent blood. It is as if he's saying, when I'm done with past due blood vengeance, I will inhabit Zion. As for the people of Judah, their eternal security is pictured by the Lord living in their midst. All right, Forest family, we too have the assurance of security for the Lord dwells in us by his spirit. Because he dwells within us, we too will flow with living water. While that is a mighty blessing to the body of Christ, it extends as a sign and a wonder to the watching world. They can choose the giver of life, or they can stand on the side of the wastelands and devastation of Egypt and Edom. Would you continue to pray for more opportunities to loose that flow of the life of Christ to those around you? In Joel, we have a greater picture of the day of the Lord to add to our study of Zechariah and 1 Thessalonians. With that comes sobriety. God remains in charge. He hates the shedding of innocent blood. He desires to be a fortress and a stronghold for his people of Israel and to those who trust by faith in Jesus as Messiah, as ruling Lord of heaven and earth and the one who will come again. In Hebrews 12, the writer by Holy Spirit says, Yet once more I will shake that which can be shaken, so that which cannot be shaken will remain. In these very days, right now, press into him in the cleft of the rock, in the fortress, in the stronghold, for there is now a great shaking taking place. Trust in his love and defense. He longs for the souls of those rioting and looting in the streets to bow before him, just as he loves for those who stand afar off. Trust that he will position you with words in your mouth for the coming days. Lastly, let's commit to pray for we as part of, as you know, we're part of this church in America that, that needs to rise to deal with our racial issues, to repent and begin to lead the way to national repentance. And pray for discernment regarding those who stand in the shadows of the racial issue for the purpose of enhancing chaos and hatred, of manipulating voter counts and wealth transfers. There is yet unrevealed wickedness in high places in America, as well as endemic generational hatreds. Pray that the evil is drawn out of hiding in the dark so that it may be dealt with by the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we seek your face and your ways. We have much to learn. We would be those who obey your commands rather than question you or your motives. We are surrounded by those who do not know or honor Scripture. Put your word within us to anchor us, to alert us, and to protect us. May that word flow out of our mouths. At the end of days, we would come and cast our crowns at your feet. In Jesus' name.
Amen. All right, Forge. Add the book of Joel to your arsenal. You're loved. We miss you. We'll see you soon. God bless you.